Hi, this is Carrie Brownstein. This is DJ Premier. This is Darren Aronofsky. You got the Rizzo right here. Rose McGowan. Right here. Aisha Tyler. A tribe Called Quest. Fred Armisen. Fritz Paul. Javier Munoz, Seth Meyers. Frankie Cosmos. Flying Lotus. Hi, we're Haim, and you're listening to the Talk House Podcast. Ow! What's up? What is up? I'm your host, Elia Einhorn. Welcome back to the Talk House Podcast. Last month, the TalkHouse podcast team headed out to the fantastic Life is Beautiful. That's a massive music and comedy fest that covers much of downtown Las Vegas. Headliners this year were Chance the Rapper, The Black Keys, and Post Malone, and we caught some amazing sets. I've shouted it out before. I'll shout it out again. Billie Eilish fucking slayed. This is the TalkHouse podcast second year at Life is Beautiful, and this time we were asked to curate three live talks as part of their kicker stage. We had a hell of a time. We presented Nikki Glaser in conversation with Bachelor Nation superstar Caitlin Bristow, as well as Fred Armisen, SNL's Chris Redd, and Portugal the Man in conversation. The show you're about to listen to fell under Life is Beautiful's Ideas banner and features actor, director, and producer Joseph Gordon-Levitt in conversation with entrepreneur, venture capitalist, and New York Times best-selling author Tony Shea who also happens to be a key figure in the revitalization of downtown Las Vegas and, as we hear in the talk, a major part of Life is Beautiful. Stay tuned to hear Joseph and Tony's thoughts on the future of collaboration, the parallels between artistic and entrepreneurial creativity, and taking business inspiration from Burning Man. Check it out. How you feeling, Life is Beautiful? How you feeling, Vegas? I'm your host, Elia Einhorn. I host the Talk House podcast. We're out of Brooklyn, New York. We are so absolutely thrilled to be a part of the Life is Beautiful Ideas series here in Las Vegas. Did any of you happen to be at the show yesterday that we did with Fred Armisen, Chris Redd, and Portugal the Man? Oh, a bunch of you. Repeat customers. I'm glad you came back. We have a very different format from most shows. What we do on the Talk House is we pair artists and creatives, we pair thinkers in long-form, unmoderated conversation. The idea being, let's get the journalist out of the way, let's get the host out of the way, and let them share unmoderated, unfiltered. The show has seen guests from Questlove to Guillermo del Toro, Carrie Brownstein, Barry Jenkins, Brian Wilson, Carly Rae Jepsen, Darren Aronofsky, and so many, many more. Our guests today are changing the face of what large-scale collaborations can look like and what they can accomplish. Tony Shea is a game-changing entrepreneur and corporate leader. He founded Link Exchange and sold it to Microsoft. He then founded Venture Frogs, an investment firm that got behind the idea that became Zappos, which he famously sold to Amazon. He is still Zappos' CEO. Tony wrote the New York Times bestseller, Delivering Happiness, where he explores the concept of combining profits, passion, and purpose. And perhaps most importantly here in Las Vegas, he's a leader in the revitalization of downtown. Yeah. Amazing work. Our other guest today, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, you may have heard of because he joined at four years old a local musical theater group and played the Scarecrow in their production of Wizard of Oz. I hate to say his career's been on a downhill slide ever since. <laughs> Third Rock from the Sun, 500 Days of Summer, Inception, The Dark Knight Rises, Snowden, and so many more have seen him become one of the most versatile and important actors of our time. Now, on top of acting, 
Joe's written for film, directed, and produced. He's also formed the company Hit Record, a community for creative collaboration. Life is beautiful. Help me welcome Joseph Gordon-Levitt and Tony Shea to the stage. Turn it over to you. We're drinking. You guys, the few of you that whooped when he said hit record, that honestly, like, I, I almost should have, like, it's really sweet. It means a lot to me. Thanks. Um, everybody here going to the Life is Beautiful festival and seeing bands and things like that. So this man is, um, in, in large part, I won't say in 100% because it's a huge team of people that put it on, but in large part responsible for it. Do you want to talk a bit about sort of the origins of Life is Beautiful and what we're all doing here just to kick us off? And I'm definitely not the person running Life is Beautiful. No, I know. I know. <laughs> but it wouldn't be without you. I only tell you that I'm running Life is Beautiful. <laughs> so. Uh, no, so uh, about seven or eight years ago, uh, started Downtown Project, which was myself and a bunch of other friends that decided to help revitalize downtown Vegas. And at the time, I think there were maybe two and a half bars in the area, but great culture. Zappos had just announced that it was taking over the former city hall, which is just a few blocks. Actually, the parking lot for the main stage is the parking lot for Zappos. And uh, it was to help create a place where you have everything you need to live, work, work, play within walking distance. And so we set aside funds to invest in small businesses like local restaurants and bars and uh, Container Park is inside the footprint. And so that's one of the parts of the downtown project. And then for Life is Beautiful, it was under that umbrella where we wanted to invest in something to help do to downtown Vegas what South by Southwest did for Austin, Texas. That, That was kind of the original idea. And it's kind of just taken a life of its own. Uh, Justin, who we met backstage, is CEO and has done an amazing job of growing it. And um, I think one of the things that maybe makes it different, whether it's Life is Beautiful or the other restaurants and bars and small businesses that we invest in, is we're really focused on local and community. And I think that's you know something that you and I, I think that's part of the reason why we liked each other. Yeah. Yeah. How many people are here are, are from Las Vegas? So there you go. I want to turn the conversation to creativity and the creative process. I don't know if any of you guys know, I started a podcast just a month ago called Creative Processing. Hey, nice. I see some nodding heads. That's very sweet of you. Thanks. And I think there's some overlap between creative processing and this show, Talk House. So we're making this sort of a joint episode. And uh, the idea of, of that show is to just have a conversation about the creative process. And I think typically the creative process, when you say that word, you think of painting or music or movie making or, you know, other kinds of art. But I really think, and I've come to learn a lot more about this in the last few years, is my attention has been focused in this direction, that there's enormous creativity in entrepreneurship, in building a business. And it's funny because I think oftentimes, I know when, when I was probably younger, the, the idea of art and business are almost like they're supposed to be church and state. Like you shouldn't conflate those two. And they're like, oh, those suits over there, they're the bad guys. And we artists are the noble like Robin Hoods or something. And the more that I've 
learned about how art actually gets made, the more I realized that that dichotomy is a false one and that there is oftentimes so much impact that whatever the logistics and the, the kind of the business model of whatever you're doing has so much impact on the creative process that it's actually, it's problematic and, and in a way naive even to divide the two too much. So I just wanted to, before we get into a question, I want to ask you about entrepreneurship and creativity. How do you see the overlap there? Would you say that it's true that like building a business is a creative process? Yeah, definitely. Um, did you ever watch the TV show MacGyver? Yes, I did. Uh, a curiosity. Not the new I mean, one. No yeah, offense, yeah, but yeah, like not the, not the, the new old. one. The yeah. and so. That was my favorite TV show growing up. And what I loved about it was, one, he wasn't allowed to take the easy way out and like never used a gun. Right. And um, he never had exactly what he needed to get out of a sticky situation, but you still had the faith and optimism that somehow he would figure out how to cobble together you know, duct tape and some paint cans and a knife or whatever, and then build a plane and... Uh, defeat the bad guys and save the world in the process. And fly out of there yeah. And on by plane. the end of the hour, when the deadline was up, you know, one of my favorite quotes about entrepreneurship or business in general is that it's never about not having enough resources, it's about not having enough resourcefulness. And so for me, like, I love being entrepreneurial because it's really just about getting to play MacGyver, but for business. Yeah. And that's actually, I find really true with making art too. Maybe not like, I've never sat and like written a novel, which I guess doesn't have a much of a budget. But like if you're making a movie, you absolutely have to be a MacGyver because no doubt at some point, no matter what your budget, I've seen this happen on massive, massive budget movies and on tiny, tiny budget movies. At some point, your plan is X and then the night before, with no time to spare, someone says, oh, that plan we had just fell through, and we can't shoot there, so we have to figure out somewhere else to shoot, or we have to find someone else to shoot with, or we have to, like, not do the scene this way, we have to figure out how to do it some other way, and you have and to sure play MacGyver. I'm sure thing happens at festivals as well. There's probably a thousand things that go wrong that uh, hopefully are hidden from most of us, and, yeah. and only Justin knows, I guess. Yeah, right. Yeah. I guess in a way that's, that's creativity is like, oh, we don't know what to do. We have to come up with a new idea. All right. So with that in mind, if we can all agree that building a business or entrepreneurship is a creative process just as what one might conventionally call art, I want to ask a question. What I normally do on my show is I usually take questions from the internet and then have one single question about the creative process inspire an entire conversation. So I came up with a question that I think would be a cool and inspiring one to uh, sort of frame the rest of this conversation. I've had a number of conversations with you about the future. And this is one of my favorite topics. I think it's something you enjoy thinking about a lot as well. So in terms of creativity in the future, my question is, say we're, pick a number, say 50 years. Different people might have different ideas about what's, you know, the future's going to be 50 years from now. But just say 50 to mean like quite a ways away, but not like thousands of years. Say we're 50 years away. How do you think the creative process has changed? What's it like to be a creative person 50 years from now? I mean, assuming 
AI hasn't killed all of us. Well, this is, this is one of the big questions, right? Yeah. yeah. No, that's one of my very real fears because... Uh, you, you all are laughing. Yeah. It's not funny. We're all going to die. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you just look at, like, how completely different the world is now where everyone's, like, glued to their phones, and these things did not exist... Yeah, I, when did the smartphone come? Like 20 years ago. I got phones. an iPhone in 2008. I think it was, I want to say 93, 94 was when people started getting some sort of mobile phones. And it's just crazy how completely that's changed the right. world. Right. And so, uh, who and knows? And right then in the mid 90s is when consumers had access to the World Wide Web, right? Only a couple decades ago. And now it's like everything in our entire lives. And then when. I think it was first MySpace, and then Facebook, and then you had grand ideas of how uh, social media is going to democratize everything and make everyone be nice to each other online. That didn't happen, did it? And, and hence, hit record, which I really liked. Uh, I forget the exact wording. Like, I'm gonna, you correct me from what I remember. So the world started out in broadcast media, which is about the masses and one-way broadcast. And then social media is about tribes and narcissism or, or yeah, likes. That's kind of so what on. happens with it. Yeah, but then especially hit record, when you pair it with advertising. Yeah. yeah. And then hit record, I think you described it as uh, kind of the next thing, which is about collaborative media and um, inspiration. Yeah. And so I, I think what's interesting is each thing uh, that happens comes out of either a reaction to what was the previous thing or kind of an iteration of it. And so who would have predicted, you know, even the last 20 years? So predicting the next 50 is pretty hard, but I do Should think... we change the number? Will it be like, I wanted to say a number that would just sound like far enough into the future. I know that some, some futurists would say that 50 years is like, oh, it's impossible. We can't even know anything about 50 years. Let's talk about 20 years. Should we say 20 years? Well, I guess I wasn't focusing on the timeline. I, I was, regardless of the timeline, I think it's hard to predict exactly what. But what I do believe in is the spirit of humanity. And you know, even if there are masses that are doing something that might not be generally good for humanity, that is going to cause maybe a minority to start. You know, in your case, to start hit record because you didn't see something like that. And then over time, there's going to be you know, people gravitating towards it. And you know, today, hit record is smaller than Facebook, but, but which, which seems like a weird thing. To, like, oh, yes, it's obvious Facebook, which is used by, I don't know how many, 5 billion people or, or something like that. But they're laughing because it's so obvious Facebook is so dominant. But if you rewind 10 years or 15 years, like, that's not an obvious thing that would have happened. And so uh, I, I think there's always room for... I think there's always going to be people fighting the good fight. And so I think over time, we're going to continue to make progress. And sometimes the progress might not seem self-evident in the moment. But sometimes, you know, it's kind of like you, the best way to get people to unite is to create a common enemy. And so at, in the moment, the common enemy might seem bad, but maybe that's what caused the people to unite. Yeah, a few themes in there I bet we'll return to. One is I just love that you're remaining optimistic because it's hard I think sometimes to how many people like can I if you were just I know this is a simplistic question if you were going to call yourself about the long-term future an optimist or a pessimist how many people would call themselves an optimist raise your hand 
How many people pessimist? It's about even. It's about even. All right. Well, thank you for your optimism. But, but going to back to the MacGyver thing, though, I, I don't think it's as simple as just saying, do we think it's going to turn out well or not, and let's see what happens. I, th I think of it more from the MacGyver perspective, right? Like, MacGyver's an optimist, but he makes that happen. Right. He doesn't just sit back and say, oh, I hope things work out. Yeah. The other thing I, I liked that you touched on was believing in humanity and keeping humanity at the center of our future. Technology is becoming so, so powerful that sometimes it seems that humanity is becoming less and less an important part of this story that's going on here, wherever it is that we live, Earth, I guess you could call it. And you mentioned, you know, AI is going to come to kill us, and there's, you know, that's the well, I don't think it's going to come and kill us. Okay. What do you think I it's going to do? Well, I think we're going to create it, and then it'd be like a kid creating a bomb and accidentally killing himself if, if he does it wrong. And so, and I think Elon Musk was the one who gave this example once, is like, imagine if you were creating AI to get rid of spam, and that was its singular purpose. And the problem isn't that AI suddenly decides to become evil and say we're more powerful than humans. The problem is humans don't properly define what the problem AI is trying to solve. And so if you imagine a future where AI can solve any problem you throw at it, as long as you define the problem correctly, and if you just say your goal is to get rid of spam in whatever the most efficient way possible is, the AI might figure out the best way to get rid of spam is to get rid of humans. And then, that, which is a correct answer logically, but not something that the human would have put as a constraint yeah. when programming the AI. I give you a real-world example to that, actually, because in an early version of what you might call AI, I've also heard AI called ML, which stands for machine learning. And the algorithms that generate your newsfeed in Facebook or Instagram or Twitter or any of these platforms are all driven by ML. And these algorithms, they're tuned to accomplish the goal not the goal of, of getting rid of spam, but they're optimized to maximize clicks, basically. They call it engagement. Engagement just basically means someone's there clicking as much as possible, because the more that someone clicks and scrolls and sees, then the more that they can serve them ads, and that's how they make money, and they're making lots and lots and lots of money. So the goal that's been given to these ML algorithms is make sure that people click as much as possible. What we didn't expect, and, and I don't think any, anyone at any of these platforms expected was there are these side effects that come along with maximizing engagement that now we're all starting to sit up and take notice of. That if you maximize engagement, the best way to maximize engagement is to show negativity, is to show anger, outrage, extremism, hatred, nationalism. I've heard some people say that we're currently living with a president that's the first president ever elected by AI. Because Facebook especially, but I, I think all of these sort of ad-driven attention economy algorithms really favor someone like Donald Trump because Donald Trump gets your attention. He gets your attention whether you love him or you hate him. He just gets your attention. It happens to me. I can't, like, I think we all probably experience that. He's very, very good at getting your attention. And what Facebook is optimized for it's not let's elect a bad president or let's elect a, you know, a, a nationalist or you know, someone with authoritative leanings or let's elect a right wing or let's elect. 
none of that, I don't think, I don't think Facebook is actually biased in any of those ways. But what it is biased towards is it's going to serve us up whatever gets our attention. And that's, I think, why we have Donald Trump is because of these technologies. But so if we jog that into the future, these kinds of machine learning technologies, artificial intelligence, whatever you want to call it, how does it affect creativity? If you're a creative person, whether you're an artist or an entrepreneur, 20, 30, 50 years in the future, and we have these technologies that can arguably produce just about anything that's economically valuable, where does that leave humans? I think that um, the thing you're talking about, the attention thing, and which feeds our dopamine systems, and those are kind of, we have four... Uh, happy chemicals. There's the kind of shorter term ones, it's uh, endorphins and dopamine, and then kind of the longer term ones are serotonin, uh, oxytocin. And what's interesting about the research on those is the first two are the uh, very short term chemicals where they found that basically it's about what's going to drive you in like now or at best today. And a year later, like whatever gave you that little hit, whether it's from clicking uh, on something online in social media or at a casino, getting a payout from a slot machine or whatever, like the short-term happiness you feel is very short-term. And a year later, it has basically no impact on you. The other ones, serotonin and oxytocin, are uh, these more social happy chemicals in your brain. Oxytocin and what? Uh, serotonin. Serotonin. And what they found is that those actually have kind of viral type of qualities where like if you witness a mother hugging their child, uh, that generates oxytocin in them, but also in you. And then it also has a longer term effect, say a year later. And so I think we're talking about different timelines and, and timeframes. So uh, yes, there is this world that it's easy to get sucked into. Like we're all guilty of, you know, something that we know you should go to the gym, but it's easier to sleep in, or we know we shouldn't have this delicious, I don't know, McDonald's French fries or mm-hmm. or candy, but you get the short term, yeah, no benefit from it. But I, I think there's also in all of us the ability to think medium term and long term, right. and so. I think it's probably the same for creativity. Like there might be certain things that constrain creativity because of what technology has done. But I think that just also creates opportunities for people to think on a different time scale for different things that they can do that have meaning. So you, know, you and I were just at Burning Man together and like the stuff that art there that's created, like it's not something someone throws up overnight. They spend at least a year, maybe longer, and they do these amazing things. Yeah. So... I think in general, you know, if you look at what most of society is doing, like at the periphery, there's always creative types, whether they're artists in the more traditional sense or really artists of any type that are kind of testing the edges and uh, doing stuff that's considered, you know, maybe more indie film-like or more uh, non-mainstream or, or, or underground or literally, you know, things that you wouldn't by definition have public support for. But I think those things drive not only the artists themselves, but the people that interact with them to kind of expand their their boundaries and not be 
constricted by just what is the most popular technology or, or culture. Yeah. You mentioned Burning Man. I don't know if any, how many of you have been to Burning Man before. It's a, it's a lovely place to be. Um, I wouldn't say it's, you know, I don't always love every single moment when I'm there, but, um, but I... I, t I took my parents for the first time this year. Okay. Tell that story. What, what was it like? My mom thought we were going camping. <laughs> <laughs> but they enjoyed it. I think Burning Man in many ways is sort of a stab at trying to imagine a future that's sort of utopian, where everyone's getting to really express themselves and, you know, everyone's sharing and, and getting to be creative and having a lot of fun. And it's a fantastic experience because you do get to have that. I think the, the issue, of course, is that it's not really a utopian, Utopia because you had to pay for expensive tickets in order to get into Burning Man. And so it's, it's really more of a, a walled garden, if you will. But it's nice as a, as a North Star of like, wouldn't it be nice if the whole world got to live this way? What do you think it would take, if we're talking about the far future, what would it take to have a world where everyone were sharing and everybody had enough and... Everybody were able to make crazy art if they wanted to or hang around and sleep or stretch or whatever if they wanted, all the different things that people do at Burning Man. What would it take? I mean, you're, you're in the process of like turning the real world into something that feels like Burning Man, like the, the, the downtown Las Vegas culture that, that you and your teams of people are driving is clearly taking some amount of inspiration from Burning Man, both aesthetically as well as it seems ideologically. And... I'm curious what, what you think, do you have an idea of like, what might it take for this to not just be a walled garden, but for this to be something that can be shared in a, in a more equitable way by everybody? I don't know if you necessarily, and this is a, I haven't thought that much about it, but I don't know if you necessarily want a year round Burning Man or- I don't, yeah. It's like, or yeah, a week is, I, I guess for me and a lot of people like that week, the, what I get out of is just that inspiration of like seeing what's possible. And it's so hard to describe for people that have not been there because it's just characterized as this crazy thing by the, by the media and just word of mouth and so on. But when you're actually there, it's just this unique thing, especially if it's your first time there. I know that the people that I brought there then come back and it just raises their bar for what's possible in terms of creativity and, and so on. And, and I think for me, that's the biggest benefit of it. Sorry, I totally forgot your original question. How could we get there? How could we spread that out to more of the world? I mean, I, yeah. I see well, it starting well, so, to happen. So my, yeah, so I'm, I guess what I'm saying is I don't think the answer is let's have Burning Man 24-7, 360. Well, certainly let's not get, like, incredibly wasted on acid every day. Like, but I, I guess the parts of Burning Man where, uh, like, for example, at Burning Man, you're not allowed to have money. If you want to give somebody something, you can uh, and yeah. you, you bring stuff well, it's and you give it out. not just that if you like, want to. It's a gifting economy. So the expectation is everyone provides some sort of gift. Some people, it might be, uh, you know, our camp, we gave out free quesadillas and others will give out other types of food or do free performances or, and so on. And so... I bring a guitar and when people ask me to sing, I do, which they don't usually ask, but sometimes they do. And I sing them something. And, and so, then they're like, 
I want my money back. Oh, I didn't pay you. Right, never mind. So, so there's the individual, you know, stuff like, oh, like, look at what these art cars look like when they're throwing, spitting out fire, and the lighting is, is amazing, right? So there's that inspiration. For me, uh, I think about it on a kind of one meta level, which actually I think ties in a little bit with Hit Record and how we're thinking about Downtown Project and what we're doing at Zappos is really, there was actually a New York Times article that came out I think a week or two ago that was talking about Burning Man and how much work actually goes into, that's mostly invisible to the participants, into the infrastructure of it. Uh, you know, the, the bathrooms, laying out the roads and, and, right. and so on, like basic infrastructure that no one thinks of, but it's that infrastructure and platform that enables all this creativity. And for me, right. that's actually the most uh, interesting thing about Burning Man, because there is no, it's not like the festival here where uh, Justin and his team say, okay, we're going to have this music and this music and this music, right? And participants are having things done to them that they enjoy. Like they enjoy being entertained or, or hear art pieces that we curated. What happens at Burning Man is here's this infrastructure that allows self-organization to happen and uh, all, all the things that are given away and, and so on, like all of that is from the participants themselves. And so from a hit record perspective, that's what you guys are evolving to is creating yep. a platform that enables collaboration, collaboration amongst yep. creators around the world. And from the downtown project perspective, most, I think, revitalization projects or real estate projects depend on having this, say, um, top-down master plan thing, whereas we were, we were anti that, and instead, we really wanted to see what entrepreneurs are passionate about. And, uh, and so if someone, say, their lifelong dream was to retire 10 years from now and start a cupcake bakery, it's not us saying, oh, there needs to be a cupcake bakery. It's them being passionate about it. And we say, well, if you're passionate about it, if we believe in your ability to execute, if you're the actual business owner running it, not a chain doing you know, corporate type of stuff, and if it's first, unique, or best, because we want to have our own identity in downtown Vegas, then that's something that we will put on our list of things to consider funding. And then similarly at Zappos, we're making the transition from this kind of, uh, we actually just had our 20 year anniversary. And so historically we've been, we're at 1,500 employees and about 300 teams, or we call them circles, and employees can belong on multiple teams. And traditionally, they've been arranged hierarchically, and now we're transitioning so that instead of hierarchy, it's more like a network or mm -hmm. more like a city where each of those teams, think of them as their own independent small business or startup, and as long as they can meet just three criteria, it's, is it in line with the Zappos culture and core values? And two, is it customer service or customer experience uh, focused as a differentiator? And three, each circle has its own concept of a bank account. Will you not run out of money? Like, there needs to be a bank account, positive balance, just like, you know, everyone needs in real life for their own personal bank accounts. Then do whatever you want. And so I think for me, it's thinking this one meta layer that, that I get inspiration from, whether it's Burning Man or seeing what's happening around downtown, like this was not a master plan, or and these didn't, were not businesses that we master planned, but it's more uh, trying to create the context and environment so that it allows people to flourish and thrive. Because if you take Burning Man, and I forget how many people, let's say it's 60 or 70,000 people, 
If you take any one of them or even 10 of them and pretend the others didn't exist, they probably would not have created whatever amazing thing they created. But because they're you know, part of this thing that at any one time has maybe 60 or 70,000 people in the community, but if you look at it over a timeline, they all iterate on each other. To me, the magic of Burning Man is really in the infrastructure itself that enables that self-organization to happen. Mm -hmm. And um, there was a quote, I'm trying to see if I can remember it, from that New York Times article that just came out, which was that um, uh, freedom requires structure uh, and yeah. creativity requires constraints. Yeah. And I think that's true in all of those contexts as we just talked about. I definitely agree that creativity requires constraints. It's a funny thing because you think about, oh, I'm creative. That means I'm free to do whatever I want. But if you just say, and I've, I've experienced this a lot personally, we also see this a lot actually on Hit Record because on Hit Record, it's all about um, these creative prompts or challenges. And people do projects and then break them down into the steps of the project. Um, and each of those steps sort of form a creative challenge. And when you give somebody a creative challenge, it, we've seen it over and over again. You see it every day on Hit Record, people coming and doing creative challenges, whether it's a writing challenge or a photography challenge or a animation, music, whatever. When you have something specific, which is in essence a constraint, it's inspiring. Because if you just say to somebody, if you say to me, write something, write something good. Like, fuck, what do I write? I don't know, I could write anything. But if you say to somebody, like, if you give them a ton of constraints, that's actually when you get the most contributions. The most contributed to creative challenges on Hit Record are the ones that are like, write a sad story in four words. You're incredibly constrained. But those are the ones that people contribute to the most. It, it is sort of like the infrastructure. It's the roads. It's the, it's the boundaries. It's like the, those constraints that it's really also, does inspire. It just helps focus your efforts. You should try this in your spare time at home. Or literally, if you give someone a challenge of you have 60 seconds and write down anything and everything that you can think of that is normally white and just make a list and see how many you come up with. And then after 60 seconds are up, come up with maybe, I don't know, 10 or 15 things. And then you ask them, okay, now think of, uh, you have 60 seconds and think of uh, and list everything that is normally white that might be in a refrigerator or freezer. And then what normally happens is they can actually come up with a much longer list, even though we all know that's smaller than the world of all things. Right, right? yeah, constraints, really true. So, I mean, if we, if we get back to our question then of how this impacts creativity moving into the future, do you think this sort of, these sort of decentralized platforms you're describing, whether it's Burning Man, downtown Las Vegas, in a certain way, hit record, obviously all three of those things are very different platforms, but they're platforms that are, are not making the art themselves, but are trying to set down an infrastructure and allow people to come and do it. Would you, would you say that then that sort of becomes the future of what it means to be a creative person? You mean to be in that context where... Yeah, this is like figuring out how, what platform you want to provide your infrastructure. Well, I mean, and it doesn't have to be this new platform. Like, I think the oldest platform of self-organization in the world already exists. It's called cities, right? The mayor right. of a city doesn't actually tell its residents where to do, where to live or what to do. And 
If you look at Manhattan, there's something like three days of food supply for all of Manhattan, but there's no central hierarchical you know, food supply manager. And it's amazingly resilient. Manhattan never runs out of food. There could be a natural disaster or a, or a bridge can go out. And these it's just different food consumers and suppliers and so on just interacting. And there's actually a whole area of research about this complex adaptive systems is what the technical term is. And almost by definition, you can't actually predict the outcome of things. But what we do know is if you look at companies, they don't stand the test of time. If you, I think the Fortune 500 list first came out in 1955, or I forget it's 100 or 500, whatever the number is, 89% of those are no longer around or on the list. And so the default future for companies is death. Or if you look at the S&P 500, I think, Average lifespan. Not making me feel optimistic about my company, man. <laughs> well, not if you try to do the same thing that other companies have done, which is why we're trying to take a different path at Zappos. We're trying to build a company that does stand the test of time and not only is around 100 years from now, but 1,000 years from now. And cities are the best example of human organizations that stand the test of time, are resilient. And then the other cool thing is from the research, every time the size of a city doubles, innovation or productivity per resident increases by 15%. But you get the opposite effect in companies. As they get bigger, they become more bureaucratic, less innovative per employee, and, and so on. And so that's a huge part of the reason why we're in the middle of restructuring Zappos to be more like a city and less like a you know typical bureaucratic organization. I like the idea of a city as a platform. When I think of a platform, I think of Facebook, YouTube, etc. And these platforms right now, while undoubtedly there's lots of value generated and there's lots of positive things going on, there's lots of beautiful videos on YouTube, there's lots of fantastic human connection on Facebook, I think there's an argument to be made that they're kind of net negative as far as the impact that they're having on the world and on each of the individual users, or at least the users on average. And th those are very much decentralized platforms. And I mean, I could hazard a hypothesis of, of why that is, but I'm curious if, if just to get your take on that, like how is a platform like YouTube or Facebook different from the kind of decentralized platform that you're describing that you would want to uh, model after a city? Yeah, I think it just comes down to does the platform actually enable self-organization? And so I'm not sure that, I'm actually not really on social media, but Wise. And uh, I'm guessing that Facebook only allows as much organization as makes sense for them, Thanks. the company or the right. platform, not what maximizes the creativity of its users. Right. Uh, whereas a city is, I think, less constrained. And if someone wants to be creative, then they can in a city environment. And also, even if Technically, something they do might be illegal if it's, say, an underground, some sort of art project that maybe it doesn't fully meet the ventilation codes if they're painting or they're experimenting with fire stuff or whatever, right? But at a small scale, that, rightly or wrongly, is enabled by cities because that's what kind of fringe artists do. Right. Okay, so we've talked now about what creativity turns into in the future, what creativity is today. Uh, I'm curious as sort of a last thought, if you're speaking to somebody listening who 
has that urge in them to do something creative, whether it's to build a business or to write a novel, art, entrepreneurship, whatever kind of creativity. And they're wondering, how the fuck do I do this? I know it. I can feel it in my body that I'm supposed to be making something, but it's a confusing world right now to figure out how I can fit in to how my creativity can actually be valuable. What would you say to somebody who's trying to figure that out for themselves? I guess I would first start with, because I think you, I forget that your exact wording, but what happens if you are a creative person and want to do X? And I would put out there that everyone is a creative person yeah. and everyone is actually probably born creative. And then that desire to be creative or the confidence to do something creative with your time gets kind of beaten out of them by society, the school system, where it's yeah. all about make sure that you do these things on time and you pass these standardized tests and, and so on. And anything that's about coloring outside the lines is actively discouraged by most of our modern school systems and, yeah. and parenting and, and, and so on. And so part of it is more, I guess, unlearning what's kind of beaten into you. I would say in general, and not just for if you want to have more confidence being creative, really, if you want to do anything in life, uh, there's that thing of like, you're the average of the five people you spend the most time with. So if you want to be more creative in life, hang out with people that inspire you and are creative in life. If you want to be a professional tennis player, go make sure the five people you hang out with are like really serious about tennis and, and that you want to becoming their average will you know raise the bar for you. That's great. All right. I think we're just about out of time. Thank you guys for listening. Thanks, Tony. Thanks to TalkHouse. This has been great. Thanks very much. Thank you. This has been TalkHouse Live. Give it up for Tony Shea and Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Tony Shea, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, thank you so much for joining us here on the TalkHouse podcast. And to Life is Beautiful, a huge thank you for hosting us as part of your festival. We loved it. We also want to give big thanks to the Life is Beautiful team behind the scenes, Ray Livingston, Kellyanne Schilke, and Victor Villacana. You rule. Today's show is recorded by Logan Shields and Mark Yoshizumi, who's also our co-producer. Check out some great pictures taken backstage at Life is Beautiful on TalkHouse's socials. That's at TalkHouse. The TalkHouse podcast theme song was composed and performed by The Range. Make sure to check out all of the TalkHouse podcasts recorded at Life is Beautiful, including Jabuki Young-White with the drums, Caitlin Bristow with Nikki Glaser, and subscribe to make sure you don't miss Fred Armisen, Chris Red, and Portugal the Man. Till next week, I'm Elia Einhorn. Peace! And Life is Beautiful. Beautiful.